Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Football Scouting Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest. We have Austin Gale from PFF. Uh, Austin, how are you doing? Doing great, man. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So uh, I actually had a, uh, the opportunity to meet Austin in person um, at the Senior Bowl in 2019 or 20, 2020 before the pandemic. And it was, you know, great, uh, great hearing from him. I got uh, great feedback about my stuff. We talked about all the processes. So uh, it was really exciting to work, work something out and have him on, uh, have him on the show. So, uh, what I would like to hear about uh, from you first is I'd like to hear about your background and like how you fell in love with the game of football. Yeah, man. Uh, it's kind of really started in high school. I, I played high school football. I've been playing football. I was playing football since fifth grade and played through high school and really liked it. My dad was obviously a big football fan, big Oakland Raiders fan. I'm from Oakland, California. And I think that's where I first like really started to really you know like football, obviously. And then when I graduated high school, you know, I'm you know, five foot, eight, five foot, nine, 160 pounds. There was no uh, playing football in college in my future. So went to school to pursue a liberal studies degree with a minor in journalism and didn't really find my footing in terms of the sports media side until I, I coached at a high school in San Diego. When I was at San Diego State, was a strength and conditioning coach for a year at a high school in San Diego State for, or not San Diego State, but in San Diego area. And then coaching wasn't really something that I wanted to continue doing. I just didn't think it was something I wanted to pursue long term and then started my own website, thedraftpulse.com. And I think uh, 26, maybe 2015. And that kind of just snowballed into more opportunities with different, you know, unpaid writing opportunities and those things and kind of just now snowballed into the career now I have with PFF. Awesome. You know, that's really uh, kind of great to hear about, like you starting your own draft website and you just starting to write at more and more places, because that's kind of similar to what we're uh, we're doing over at uh, X XTB and what my kind of goals are. Well, I don't really have as much journalism background. I mean, I had a journalism minor, but I quickly realized that unless I'm writing about a very specific thing I enjoy writing about, don't really uh, enjoy writing that much. But it's really kind of interesting to see that we have um, um, can you tell a little bit more exactly about how you ended up with PFF and how you kind of got to the PFF and got to where you are? Yeah, so when I was uh, graduating from San Diego State in May of 2017, I was already working for PFF as a part-time data collector. In addition to a lot of other things, I was working at Fox Sports San Diego as a production assistant. Um, I worked at UCA, USA Today, San Diego Union Tribune, the Daily Aztec, a bunch of other internships and these things at San Diego, uh, San Diego State. And when I was graduating, I had an offer to do Big Ten wrestling, cover Big Ten wrestling to the Lincoln Journal Star in Nebraska. I had an offer to do high, you know, cover high school sports in Baltimore. I think it was women's softball, high school sports in Kansas. I think it was Pratt, Kansas, a newspaper in Pratt, Kansas. And then kind of late in the process, I told PFF that I wouldn't be doing any more data collection. And they said, hey, you know, we have this opportunity opening up. It's not necessarily writing. It was purely really a customer service gig. Um, and I, you know, really took it. I, I said, you know, rather than going to maybe a newspaper outlet, I went to Pro Football Focus instead. Uh, saw that as a, a big, you know, a small fish or a big fish in a smaller pond or whatever the expression goes. But I really wanted to work in football. And I loved, you know, what PFF was trying to do as a small kind of sports media outlet, a small subscription model. And I think uh, I jumped on it and then have now, since being a customer service guy in 2017, I'm now the, the one of the content directors here at PFF. Yeah, that that is awesome. Like that's just um, we're as a customer service person myself. Like that's just incredible, uh, incredible to uh, hear and know that like that skill set like really quickly tra uh, transitioned. 
So you've been at PFF for a while, and I've I've mentioned this uh, to you before in other conversations. But I've tended to I've noticed that this year the PFF draft coverage is a, a little different. I've always associated PFF draft coverage with things uh, with uh, valuing production as being the main driving force in uh, PFF grading, production, and grades. Um, I remember you guys doing things like having AJ as um, Andy Isabella with first uh, first round grades and things of that nature. How has PFF uh, draft coverage evolved in the last couple of uh, last couple of years? And what have you like learned about scouting that you've been able to um, figure out from all the grading to doing this for so long? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing that PFF has learned since, you know, PFF started grading college football players in 2014 and didn't really have like two or three year samples on college football players from a grading perspective until obviously 2015, 2016. So I don't think PFF really found its footing in terms of how to how to balance production, grading profiles, advanced statistics, at the collegiate level with traditional scouting methods like traits, measurables off-field, character, those types of things that have been in traditional scouting for a long time. I don't think they found that balance or we found that balance until probably 2018, 2019 started to get more into it. And now since uh, Mike Renner has taken over as the lead draft analyst at PFF, you can follow him on Twitter at PFF underscore Mike. He's been doing it since 2019. And I think his, or his first draft board, or no, I think it was 2020 actually. His first draft board was the 2020 draft board. And now obviously he is the lead draft analyst for the 2021 draft board. In the past, it was a blend of different analysts that would contribute to the 2017, 18 and 19 draft boards. Now it's kind of Mike's final call. He is the GM of PFS draft board, so to speak. And I think what really we've learned a ton is that, you know, traits and measurables translate, you know, Dr. Eric Eager, who is, um, you can follow him on Twitter, PFF underscore Eric. He is the vice president of research and development here and a very big resource for NFL and NCAA teams who do a lot of evaluating talent. And he's done a lot of work on looking at advanced statistics and, and grading profiles and those things to see what actually translates from college to the NFL. And he's found in his, you know, in his analysis that, Traits translate. If you're six foot eight, 310 pounds, and a you know, 90th percentile athlete at Alabama, you're going to be six foot eight, 310 pounds, and 90th percentile athlete in the NFL. You know, it's not like that changes. And I think that that stickiness, that stability of measurables and traits is a, is is awesome. And it's something that you know, obviously, teams have coveted for a very long time, like arm talent, speed, change of direction ability, all that stuff. And I think where the edges in evaluation are now is finding what else is translatable because it's not that hard to identify good athletes, especially with the combine pro days, next gen stats data, GPS tracking. It's not, it doesn't take, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that guy's a good athlete. You know, you get all this access to measurables and those things where the edges are in player evaluation or, you know, off field interviews, in my opinion, production profiles, that type of stuff where PFF's trying to get into and find what exactly at the collegiate level can you do that is predictive from college to the NFL. Because obviously traits and measurables will dominate the conversation because of how stable those things are. Let's figure out now where the other edges are in terms of player evaluation and those things. All right. So um, that ac- that actually makes a, a lot of sense. I mean, when people think about an- uh, analytics um, type evaluation for years, I thought like that just meant like finding ways of valuing production. But I've noticed that it has since like turned into things such as like building speed scores and using things like relative athletic scores and using uh, athletic profiles as one of the large driving forces. So I was um, I looked through the board and found some players that 
I felt that were not very productive according to their grades, but were higher than both consensus and what I was expecting from PFF. And I was uh, wondering uh, why they're why they're so uh, high. First guy on the list is your 40th ranked overall player, Walker Little from uh, offensive tackle from Stanford. Uh, why is he so high up after, uh, on the board after not playing like any games since 2018? Yeah, I mean, I think that comes back to traits. I mean, he's a former five-star offensive tackle. He was a better recruit than Alex Leatherwood and Jedrick Wills in that same class. He is a legitimate, insane athlete, and I think you saw that at Stanford's Pro Day with his measurables and those things. We've also had a lot of conversation with Paul Alexander, who's currently working with Walker Little, a former offensive line coach and a big friend of PFF, talking about his development and what he's done. He's also been interviewed on our our podcast, Two for One Drafts, and talking to him about his development and those things, why he opted out, the injury he suffered in 2019. I think Walker Little, if he plays these past two seasons, is talked about as the top 15 player in this class. Like that is 100% fact, especially with where the, you know, after the drop off after Darisaw, Christian Darisaw of Virginia Tech, I think you're talking about Walker Little as a better prospect than guys like Tevin Jenkins, Jalen Mayfield, Alex Leatherwood, Sam Cosme. He is a better offensive tackle prospect than those guys if you didn't have the obvious injury concerns and you just haven't seen him play. You know, when I talked to him on the podcast, he has not seen a collegiate pass rusher in almost 18 months or more than 18 months. Like that is obviously a concern. He's not going to be a guy that will hit the ground running. So you kind of have to factor that in. Walker Little will not be Tristan Worse year one. It'll be very difficult for him to kind of hit the ground running in the NFL and adjust to the speed of the NFL, especially considering even the games he did play were in the Pac-12. And as we know, Pac-12 edge defenders, Pac-12 defensive linemen, outside of maybe Kayvon Thibodeau of um, Oregon, you just don't see a lot of talent there. Joe Tryon, obviously successful, and I think he's had some opportunities against him. Also, um, former Utah edge defender Bradley and I. But still, Walker Little, one, doesn't have a ton of experience, two, Injury concerns, obviously, but an elite athlete, former five-star recruit, those guys with those traits are going to go highly in the draft. All right. Yeah, that that would make sense. I mean, I would uh, I've been really big on studying injury histories. Like it was my job. Uh, I went through and I built like an entire like spreadsheet, like keeping track of all of the injuries and Walker Little. I mean, a whole dislocated knee. That's that's definitely uh, I graded him out as moderate injury risk. That's definitely something that's really important. But it's also something that I think is something he should be able to uh, recover from. But yeah, those complete like mystery players where you don't have film, you really just have to kind of fill in the gaps. And I talked with Paul Alexander at the senior bowl and we all know he's a, just a great um great offensive line mind i talked with him about the pff grades and he had lots of nice things to say so that was a really um that's that's really good i think we um my our scouts we kind of had him at around like a more of a third to fourth round grade i think he is our ot yeah he's our ot 16 but still gonna get probably drafted third fourth uh, the next guy, which is probably one of the guys that we have, um, my group and your group has the highest disparity on, is Tay Gowan. You have him at, I think, uh, player number 50 in the second round uh, when uh, our scout, who actually uh, who played defensive back in high school and was our defensive back grader, thought he was more of a six-rounder. What did you see in Tay Gowan that makes you say, this guy is just a really under-the-radar guy and he's going to be better than somebody like Tyson Campbell or Eric Stokes? Yeah, I mean, uh, very good athlete, good length, good production at outside corner in 2019 after transferring from Miami of Ohio. And I think uh, it's another guy where if he doesn't opt out of the 2020 season, People are talking about him a lot in a, a lot better light, and I think he didn't even receive an invite to the Indian, you know, into the combine, obviously, which was completely virtual and more of a procedural um, endeavor this year. But I do think Tay Gowan 
massively underrated. I don't think he'll ultimately end up in the 50s on our draft board, depending on where Pro Day lines up with him. After talking to him, though, you hear about his background. I mean, he opted out of the 2020 season after obviously transferring to UCF for the 2019 season because he caught COVID-19, ended up giving it to his premature daughter, who was born only a couple of weeks before getting COVID-19, and then also gave it to his mom. And obviously, opted out of the 2020 season, did not want to play with COVID-19 without knowing the effects or the long-term effects of COVID-19. So a really interesting backstory with Tay Gowan, a guy that you can't discredit in any way, shape, or form for opting out of the 2020 season. I think you see that with a lot of these guys. You know, Rashad Bateman is another guy that caught COVID-19, lost 10 pounds, battled it for two weeks, ended up opting back into the season, playing for the Minnesota Golden Gophers, not putting up maybe the same levels of production you saw in 2019, but still a very talented player, a guy that will likely go in the first round. Um, but take Allen, man. I, I do think he probably ends up in closer to the 60s or 70s on PFS draft board, depending on how pro days stack out. But take Allen, really underrated player, one of the better outside cornerback prospects in this class. Absolutely. And uh, moving from one corner to another, uh, this one was surprising to me because he actually has almost neg- like poor PFF grades. And that's uh, Rashad Wild Goose, who we didn't even have on our board. Like uh, we had a guy take a quick look at him and he said he wasn't even good enough to be like a top four, uh, 300 top 400 player. He graded out as a 58.7 this year on 56 snaps, albeit and only a 67 last year. And that's Rashad wild goose. What's uh, what's going on with him and why are you guys pretty much the only people I know of who are banging the drum on him? Uh, I think you're seeing a similar theme here, but that's just another really damn good athlete. I mean, a guy who had an 8.46 Ross, 5'11", 197 pounds, one of those guys that you really do like to see playing in the slot at the next level. And he's on our all upside team. It's an article Mike, uh, Mike wrote, Mike Brenner wrote for the PFF.com recently because he very well could not be a, you know, a productive player in the NFL. He's kind of a high ceiling, low floor type of player, but you bet on athleticism in the NFL. You bet on traits in the NFL. Like I said, when I was talking to Daniel Jeremiah at the Senior Bowl, I think early in 2020, he talks about Mekhi Becton a lot. And he was one of the first uh, draft analysts to have Mekhi Becton as one of the first two offensive tackles drafted in his mock draft. And he said he talked to multiple scouts, multiple coaches, and they say every single time, Mekhi Becton could have a bad day of practice. You know, he could show up, allow a ton of pressures, allow a ton of sacks. But I'll tell you what, the next day, he's going to show up six foot nine, 340 pounds. He's going to be just as good of an athlete. We're going to coach the bad out of Mekhi Becton. And I think there will be teams that see Rashad Wild Goose, not in the same vein as Mekhi Becton, obviously, but a guy that has a ton of athleticism, a ton of desirable traits, specifically for slot cornerback at the next level. And does he have a lot of good tape? Not yet. But I think in, at the collegiate level, you're banking on those guys getting better in the NFL and well worth a day through flyer, in my opinion. Wow. All right. So, yeah, you guys are uh, liking athletes. I'm trying to think of like a player that's like a really good ath- uh, athlete that you don't have to kind of like th- uh, throw you a curveball. The first guy that's coming into my head who had a really, really good pro day has all has an incredible size and speed profile was Felipe Franks. Uh, not only does Felipe Franks have the prototypical size four six speed, he was among the most accurate quarterbacks by some of the PFF um, methods that I've seen yet. Um, let's see, you guys have him. Yeah, we got, you have him like below Sam Ellinger. Uh, why, why has that not really translated over to Felipe? He just hasn't played a lot of good football. I mean, he does have good size, good athleticism, but in the quarterback position, I think it's very different. You're obviously looking for arm talent, and Felipe Franks has an absolute cannon. I mean, Felipe Franks has one of the best throws I've ever seen in college football, that Hail Mary when he was still playing for Florida. The problem Mm -hmm. is, I think, you know, at the quarterback position, it's a little bit different in that you're not looking exclusively 
for traits, you know, I think you're looking for obviously traits and, and then production, a lot of good quarterback play. It's one of the few, not one of the few, but one of those positions where being a good athlete or having a big arm is not going to get you the whole way. I mean, we've seen the Jamarcus Russells of the world kind of not, you know, not translate in the NFL. I think he has not played enough good football to kind of consider him one of the top quarterback prospects in this class. He's also, you know, protocol size. That's like six foot seven. Dude. He's a big dude. He, he has like a tight end profile almost in some ways. Obviously, I don't suggest him to make that transition to tight end. But I do think Felipe Franks, you'd like to have seen him take a leap with Arkansas. You know, you saw Florida, Kyle Trask have a ton of success with very worse tools, a lot worse tools than Felipe Franks has. But Kyle Trask comes in, has a lot more success than Franks does. That's going to knock Felipe Franks' profile. And then he goes to Arkansas and you just expected him to be a little bit better. You expected him to take more leaps. And I still think he's a great developmental quarterback prospect with the traits he does have. I just don't think he's uh, one of the top quarterback prospects in this class. Okay, yeah, we um, what is it? I feel that there's like nine quarterbacks that is everyone kind of has like the consensus as these are the guys who are guaranteed to get drafted. I mean, Lawrence Fields, Wilson, Lance, uh, Lance and Jones, like they're the they're the big they're the big boys, and then everybody has or almost everybody has Trask, Davis, Mills, Kellen Mond, and Jamie Newman as the absolute. They're not going to be first rounders they're not starters but they're absolutely going to get drafted and then in like the franks book ellinger and bichelle tier like some of those guys i wouldn't be surprised if they go undrafted but out of that tier um i felt that felipe franks would have the most up, uh would have the most upside i i do think though and and mike and i have talked to ton about this on our podcast i think it's interesting that you know, the hit rate on quarterbacks that don't go day one is so low. You know, I, I think you see like the, the Derek Carr and Andy Dalton's of the world very much being outliers. And these guys that like have these traits and have these athleticism, it's very difficult to be that athletic and that like traitsy, for lack of a better word, and not play good football in college. Like how are, you know, that's one of those positions where you're given a ton of opportunities and Frakes was definitely given those. Yeah. Like yeah, they're like, yeah, all of the quarterbacks that I mentioned that are going to get drafted have really good trades. I mean, Newman's got a great arm and is pretty athletic. We all know Kellen Mond has a, a great arm and is athletic. Davis Mills. So, yeah, it's all it's really interesting, that second tier of uh, quarterbacks. So uh, how what, who are some of your favorite uh, late round guys? I've always felt that scouting uh, late round guys is like your next step when you are in the scouting world. Like everybody wants to scout the Trevor Lawrences. Everybody wants to scout the uh, Zayvon Zayvon Collins and the JC Horns. But being able to find like talent off of the uh, people's top 150 boards is one of the most important, uh, is one of the most valuable things you can do as a uh, scout. Because if you can do that, you're going to be valuable to the NFL. Who are some people that you have earmarked either via um, your PFF gradings or production uh, type methods or with um, athletic profiles that aren't really getting talked about that should be getting talked about? You know, when I think of late round guys, I definitely look for specific positions to find value. You know, I think there's still a ton of edge. There's a big edge in NFL decision making around positional valuation and valuing, you know, interior defensive linemen, interior offensive linemen, running backs in later rounds and, and finding value for those guys. I think a name that comes to mind is Bobby Brown of Texas A&M, a big monstrous nose tackle type that you're not going to draft in the first, second or third round purely off the position he plays. But six for four, 325, graded really well against the run this past year above the 75th percentile. That That's a guy I like to take on, you know, fourth, fifth round, even maybe even the sixth round if he does fall because you're, you, you're limited in that Bobby Brown is not the defensive tackle type that you take early because he does not have this pass rushing upside. However, 
taking a guy like that can be very, very productive when you do take him that late. A similar player is that is Tyler Shelvin. You know, Tyler Shelvin of LSU is not going to be a guy that people covet probably until the late third, fourth round because it doesn't have that pass rushing upside. However, if you run you know, a 3-4 defense where you need those big two-gapping nose tackles, Tyler Shelvin's a very talented player at the back end of the third, fourth round would be you know, a one for me. Tommy Togiai, defensive tackle for Ohio State, is another one where it's like you know, jumping on board with him and getting a, you know, a defensive tackle that can come in and play the run as well as Togiai did for Ohio State is, is really awesome to see. Another, another defensive tackle I really like that Graded pretty well for Louisiana Tech, had a pretty decent pass rush win rate, and also athletic profile, you know, that is very good. He's probably going to rocket up boards after his pro day. It's Milton Williams of Louisiana Tech. That's a guy that – Yes, man, that's um, – yeah, What he talking. did at uh, his pro day is cool. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. So I've been talking with uh, people about uh, Milton William, uh, Williams who have uh, watched him, and everybody is, like, so confused. It's like on his pro day, his numbers were legitimate Aaron Donald type pro day numbers like he ran faster than Aaron Donald at a similar height and weight but uh all the people I talked to felt that they never really saw that kind of player on film uh we gave him we gave him like a below average uh grade for pass rushing uh, we thought it had like chance to uh, chance to grow but we never really we didn't feel that this guy could uh play in the NFL right uh right away so He's probably one of those players that I'm just like the athletic testing and what people are seeing on film is just so separate, um, just so different. And I wasn't sure if you uh, you saw that on film or how you would kind of like balance out um, balance out those two different realities. I mean, I, I think you still saw it on film, in my opinion. I, I don't think it was like there consistently. And I do think that's obviously an issue when you don't, when you only see flashes from a player who is that athletic, who does have that crazy profile. It's like, why did we only see flashes? Is it because he's still developing from a technique perspective? Is it off field that's kind of distracting him? It's a lot of different things that can keep an athlete such as Milton Williams, who's you know, six foot four, 280 and does the things he does, like you said, similar to Aaron Donald. It's like, why didn't we see it? You know, why didn't we see a Milton Williams dominate that level of competition playing for Louisiana Tech. But you look at his pass rush grade this past year, 99th percentile. You look at his pass rush grade on true pass sets, 100th percentile. Like you saw it on the plays that he did take, you know, did have opportunities to really go after. Uh, pass rush win rate, 99th percentile. Run defense grade, 91st percentile. The tape and the production is there. He is a very talented player that you saw it. If you didn't see it on tape, I don't know what you're looking at. You know, Milton Williams had it on tape. It was there. The problem is right. I think he's a small school player. And all right. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, what is it? Those we have like a huge block of um, defensive tackles that were we were like looking at where it was like, wow, this guy has like real NFL level like play strength, but no or like zeros or very low on pass rushing. Like uh, I watch Lorenzo Neal and it's like, wow, it's a big guy, but he's just a big, uh, big guy. And uh, but, yeah, there's just so many of those guys like uh, Bobby Brown. Um, Forrest Merrill was another guy we really like. Same with Isaiah Loudermilk. There, there's just a lot of really good defensive tackles that you can find uh, in the late rounds. Uh, what about wa- wide receivers? This year's wide receiver class is just so deep. Like they're just like uh, if you really wanted to, you could probably give out like 50 draftable grades to receivers this year just because it's that deep. Um, who are some guys that, uh, in the later rounds that you think will impre- uh, will be able to make some buzz in their first couple of years? 
I think Amari Rogers of Clemson could come in as a day three player and play in the slot as a, at a high level very early on. I think um, other like Tamori Terry, Dwayne Eskridge, if you're looking for pure speed on the outside, could be really successful. Kate Johnson, South Dakota State, like can actually create separation on a legitimate route tree. Will probably be just a slot guy in the NFL due to size concerns, but that's a guy that I know Mike is a big fan of, and I think could even play on the outside if he can add weight and do different things and still get better technically. You probably didn't see outside of you know Demetri Felton had a lot of good reps at the Senior Bowl, but I think Kate Johnson kind of got slept on because Demetri Felton was dominating um, some of that stuff. Josh Palmer of Tennessee is another guy I really like. If you turn on all of Patrick Sertan's coverage snaps on the outside, Palmer's one of the only receivers that can actually beat Sertan deep. You know, like that you saw that from Palmer and you rarely see obviously cornerbacks or wide receivers beating Sertan down a vertical route tree. And I think you see that from Palmer, you could probably see them doing that in the NFL. I mean, you saw Chris Sims of NBC sports obviously have Diami Brown. as his number three receiver in the class. I think he ultimately does go day two. That's another receiver. I do really like that won a very limited vertical route tree at UNC had the highest average depth of reception in college football over the past two years. But just because you haven't seen it, just because you haven't seen Diami Brown work a more diverse rapture doesn't mean he can't do it. And I think that's something that Chris Sims would speak to as well. Awesome. So my um, wide receiver, that is my sleeper. Uh, he ended up being, I think, wide receiver 20 on uh, on our board was uh, Dax Milne from BYU. Um, I just saw it, saw him at first when watching um, Zach Wilson. And I mean, at the time when people were, were just getting used to him, it was like, wow, Zach Wilson's doing all of this and he doesn't have a Chris Olave or um, Amari Rogers like the other big guys do. And then I'm like, wait a second, this Dax Milne guy is actually pretty solid. And I really liked his profile well he doesn't really have like the um i i mean he's six one one ninety, so it's not small um but he just caught everything and his ball skills were just consistent he never dropped passes was able to make catches away from his body and uh really kind of was very consistent with Zach Wilson, and I almost feel that if Zach didn't have Dax Milne, I'm not sure we would be talking about him as being like the top five quarterback he is uh, right now. Have you have you had a chance to watch him yet? I have. I, I, that is definitely a hot take, Paul. I don't know. I think Dax Milne. I mean, it's an interesting athletic profile. Six one one ninety. Not a lot of yak ability. I agree that with the the ball skills, caught everything thrown his way. You saw him win as a deep vertical threat for BYU, but also doing it against some pretty bad competition. One of the best deep ball throwers in the game in Zach Wilson last year. One of the most accurate, if not the most accurate quarterback throwing down the field last year. I do think Dax Milne was propped up by Zach Wilson more than Zach Wilson was propped up by Dax Milne. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, even if he wasn't there, I still think Zach Wilson would be like a top 10 pick. But I think uh, I really do think uh, Dax Milne did move the needle um, and really kind of gave Wilson a little bit wider, a uh, little bit more room for error because on those deep passes, because I did this, my Zach Wilson report and I gave him an elite grade for deep throw accuracy. It was like, uh, I think I made the um, statement on Twitter that um, Zach Wilson completes 30 yard go routes up from the opposite hash. Like uh, Jordan Love would complete a slap slant route. It was like just unreal consistency, um, unreal consistency from him. No, I would agree. I mean, Zach Wilson, one of the best deep ball throwers in this class. I think he's up there with it's, – it's a big reason why, you know, Chris Sims sees him as the number one quarterback in this class. PFF sees him as the number two quarterback in this class. He's going to be viewed highly because he's an athlete with a big arm that's very accurate down the football field, and that's what wins in the NFL today. Mm-hmm. One thing I was a little surprised is uh... – me personally, I have Justin Fields as number two. Um, and one of the things that I've like learned from just years of being around the uh, 
analytics community is like the value of having a quarterback have multiple good seasons under his belt in college. And um, I was wondering how much of the argument that Justin Fields has had two great college football seasons and Zach Wilson has had one great college football season and one that was pretty good but had some injuries and never really fully odd but was never as great as what Fields was in 2019. How much does the one-year wonder factor come in with Zach Wilson? Uh, see, I, I, I feel like I've stopped buying into the one-year wonder and knocking quarterbacks for that. Kyler Murray, one-year wonder. Joe Burrow, one-year wonder. I mean, they can rarely get that opportunity to be fully developed, fully within an offensive system until your final year of college. It's why you see these guys like Zach Wilson, Joe Burrow, Kyler Murray kind of jump up and, and be these quarterbacks that they were. I mean, when you compare it to guys who have multiple years of really good production, Baker Mayfield had three years really well at Oklahoma. You saw Trevor Lawrence has had multiple years really well uh, at Clemson. Justin Fields, another example. Josh Allen played, didn't play all that well until his last year at Wyoming from a grading perspective. I don't really put too much stock into how many years did you play well, because a lot of that is very situation dependent, just like it is in the NFL. Like you look at Joe Burrow, he transferred from Ohio State, had a short summer to learn an entire playbook at LSU. Joe Brady's playbook, which is complex in its own right, didn't really get the full grasp of it, didn't grade that well in the year prior to his 2019 season. Then when he puts it all together, that's one of the best seasons we've ever seen from a quarterback in college football. I think you put more stock into the final year, specifically at the quarterback position, because it's a it's a position that it's very hard to hit the ground running at because you have to command an offense, because you have to learn an entire offense, develop chemistry with receivers and those things, where you're looking for more early success as receiver, running back. I mean, if you see it from an offensive tackle or interior offensive lineman, it's really exciting. But for a quarterback, I don't knock a guy if he didn't really put it all together to his final year because it's a very difficult position to play. I mean, that's evidenced by there's only being, you know, 10 or 15 really, really good quarterbacks in the NFL. I would say less than 10, actually. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then one last thing, it's been the, it's been the hot discussion, uh, hot discussion over um, Twitter the uh, last couple of days. How much does size matter for wide receivers? And we can talk both about Devontae Smith and uh, Rondale Moore. I, I do think size is, is, is pretty important for the wide receiver position. I, I think for Devontae Smith, 170 pounds is one of the lighter receivers, especially when you consider his six foot one frame that we've really ever seen. And I think you were banking on Devontae Smith being an outlier, but he is one. You know, he was has the best yards per out run figure of any receiver in college football against press. He has the best yards per out run figure of any receiver in college football on the outside. Where you expect those 170 pounds or lack thereof to show up is against press on the outside, winning down the football field. And he did that in the SEC. And I think older player too, 22 years old, similar age to Jalen Waddell. And to see that, you know, he showed up to Alabama at 160 pounds. To only get to 170 over four years at Alabama with that weight room, with that program, I think speaks to how hard it is for him to put on weight. I, I do think Devontae Smith is not one of those guys that weighs in at 170 and then plays in the NFL at 185, 190. I think it's been difficult for him to add weight for whatever reason that may be, just body type reasons. And he will struggle against maybe some bigger cornerbacks in the NFL. I don't think he's going to be it's as simple as that. He was really good in college. He's going to be really good in the NFL. We've seen a lot of talented receiving prospects struggle in the NFL. I think it's a reason for him to not like him ahead of Jamar Chase. It's a reason to not like him ahead of Jalen Waddle, but still a top 10 player in this class. I mean, Devontae Smith is easily a top 10 player, top eight player in this class, regardless of what he weighs in at. And I think to take this conversation to Rondell Moore, I think the, the, the five foot seven, two inches lower than what we expected really speaks to his his role in your offense is going to have to be schemed. It's going to have to be a gadget type of role. And that in and of itself makes it difficult to 
spend a first round pick on. I think he ultimately falls to day two and it's going to be to an offense or an offensive coordinator that wants to be adamant and specific with how they're going to use his skill set. You cannot bring in Rondell Moore, play him at the X or the Z for 800 snaps a season. That's not what his role is going to be in the NFL. You have to be very persistent and very specific with the role you want him to play in your offense. And if he can stay healthy, I know he's a guy that's battled two grade one hamstring injuries over the past few years. If he can stay healthy, he's going to be a very dynamic yak player for your offense. You can use him in the backfield and those things. The problem is, is you don't take him the same, the same pick that they took to Austin a few years ago. You take him on day two and you carve out a role for him in your offense. If you're looking for a yak guy with a ton of dynamism, some people are saying he's going to move to running back. I disagree. I think you're going to use him as multiple players, I mean, multiple positions. It's going to be very similar to a Curtis Samuel role in the NFL, in my opinion. Yeah, because like uh, when I was thinking of Rondale Moore at 5'9", 180, I didn't really have any real concerns because that's like Antonio Brown weight. That's um similar to like Tyreek Hill weight or even T.Y. Hilton weight at the worst. Um, but with... Uh, him going five seven like that's kind of unheard of i'm doing i'm doing the uh the stat head search right now and um what is it the only wide receiver here just switching the um dang it i i lost it but um at least for moving it back to Devonte smith um when I was looking this up, trying to figure out how much of an outlier he is, and like the closest body comp that I could find for him at around like 6'1, 170 pounds, was Todd Pinkston, who was like a wide receiver too back in like the 2000s. It was just, if he were to have success, it would be unprecedented. I, I'm not quite sure exactly how to internalize it, but I'm thinking that the how I'm going to do so is I think it's going to just limit his like upside. Like I think he's proven that he can have success with his ball skills and route running, but I, I just am really hesitant to ever think he can be a true number one wide receiver. I think he might be more in line for a Corey Davis-esque career, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot, enough data to kind of suggest that maybe he won't hit the ceiling like he won't be Randy Moss. I mean, he's not going to be Randy Moss. He's not going to be Calvin Johnson, like he, not Julio Jones. Like he's not that rare of a specimen, not that rare of a prospect. Is he damn good? Absolutely. That's where you're picking him. That's why you're picking him inside the top 10. I think he can immediately be from a, you know, you know ranking wide receiver ones versus wide receiver twos. I think he can have wide receiver one production. Um, early on in his career because he's still very good at the receiver position. And I think that's something that's gotten underrated over the past five, 10 years. You know, so, so many teams and so many GMs and, and evaluators have flocked towards speed and athleticism at the wide receiver position to a point where they're letting, you know, other guys that are maybe more skilled at the position having success on day two and day three. I think it's a big reason why you saw the 2021 NFL free agency market, the receiver position be, you know, a little bit softer. You know, you didn't see these guys sign big deals, sign big monster deals. Obviously, Kenny Galladay got his later, but he didn't reset the market, didn't even clear $20 million average per year. So I do think that um, people are, you know, teams are finding out that speed isn't everything. I mean, the, I think the Raiders know that with Henry Ruggs. The Bengals know that with John Ross. Like, it's not all speed. You're going to need a guy who's, like, technically proficient at the position to have success. It's a skilled position for a reason. You know, it is a, it is a skilled position. It's not something where you just throw any athlete at wide receiver and he's going to have success. Yeah, that's one of the things that makes Tyreek Hill so special is everybody talks about his speed, but he's honestly probably top 10 in the NFL with ball skills and going up to get getting contested catches. And you never like think of that because he's so small. But if you were to watch uh, when watching the games, it's something that flashes over and over again. He's not just a guy that you just send on go routes. It, he's a guy who can make those really tough catches. And he's that type of guy who can uh, play 
kind of like play dirty and play uh, play smart. And uh, I finally pulled uh, pulled it up. So in uh, in the two thousands, uh, can you get uh, guess which five seven wide receiver has gotten the most receiving yards? Trivia time. Hmm, I'd want to lean Trendon Holiday would be my guess, but mm. I think there's another name. Hmm, Trendon Holiday. No, I'm not sure actually. Who? Andrew Hawkins. Oh, Andrew Hawkins was five foot seven. Andrew Hawkins was five foot seven, and um the next the next highest group or the next uh the next batch of five seven people with the most receiving yards were running backs like Tariq Cohen and Darren Sproles, and then you have Taylor Gabriel. So that's kind of like the big hit for me is like I'm going I have to view Rondale Moore instead of seeing him as having like that Tyreek Hill type just electric potential to now I kind of have to view him closer to being Tariq Cohen than I can to Tariq Hill, and that's just that's going to be very difficult for me to kind of uh taken the first uh first round or I'd, I'd actually be kind of hesitant to take him in the second round over somebody like Terrace Marshall who we know has the size that's interesting I didn't realize Andrew Hawkins was that small and he wasn't even as fast or as explosive as Rondell Moore as I or as dynamic as Rondell Moore uh it's kind of obvious why he got undrafted but he still had a ton of success in the NFL that's interesting yep so yep uh and then if you want to go further back, Richard Johnson and Lionel James are the only people to ever get 1,000 yards being shorter than 5'7 um, or shorter. Gotcha. So there, there you go. There's uh, there's some uh, research uh, courtesy. That was courtesy of Pro Football Reference and StatHead. So, yep, I got it all. I've got PFF. I've got StatHead. I've got all the numbers. I'm your numbers guy. Nice, man. All right. Uh, thank you, Austin. Do you have any other uh, questions, comments, or things you want to uh, want to say before we go? I think I'm set, man. I really appreciate the time. Absolutely. I appreciate um, your time and you just uh, giving us a boatload of information. Um, obviously, follow uh, um, Austin. Are you PFF Austin or PFF Austin Gale? PFF Austin Gale. PFF Austin Gale. All right. Thank you very much. And I uh, hope all of you guys have a great rest of your night.